you should try organic. What about becoming vegan? Don't eat any carbs. How about low carb? Paleo, keto, don't eat anything white. Don't forget about the dirty dozen. You eat too little. You eat too much. Don't forget to fast before you work out. I do intermittent fasting. Don't eat after six o'clock. Oh my God, sugar? Every day, I'm inundated with opinions. And you know what they say about opinions. Please, don't be foodish. Join me, Amy Goldsmith, owner of Kinder Nutrition and Wellness and Dietitian for 20 years, as I talk evidence-based nutrition to get the disorder out of eating. I can't wait to serve you. Hi, Kindred community. It's Amy Goldsmith, and I am back for episode six. I am going to talk to two wonderful women who are empowering, provide so much to the community, and are experts in running. I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. Stay tuned. Well, hello there, everybody. Today I have two wonderful women that I'm very excited to introduce. Um, I have Julie Sapper and Lisa Levin. And they are both owners of Run Farther and Faster. If you're local, I'm sure you've heard of them. They have a wonderful podcast as well. Um, And why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourselves? I'd love for you to highlight all of your accomplishments. Sure, Amy. First of all, thank you so much for having us on your podcast. You were one of the first guests on our podcast when we started a few years ago. And we're really honored to um, be your guest now. So congratulations. And Lisa and I are both avid runners. We started Run Farther and Faster 11 years ago. We both started running um, to relieve stress in law school uh, without dating ourselves too much. That's now uh, about 25 years ago. (laughs) And um, when we both started running, we did not consider ourselves to be athletes. Neither of us played uh, traditional sports growing up. I think we both were cheerleaders and uh, we dappled in dance and things like that, but we never thought of ourselves as runners and we actually pretty much hated endurance sports, but we found ourselves both running to relieve stress because we couldn't afford to join gyms and whatnot. And we found running to be a really effective stress reliever. And while Lisa and I didn't know each other, our trajectory is very similar. Uh, Lisa ran her first race, a 5k and suddenly found herself to be a fast runner and, and won the race. And uh, similarly, I ran my first race, a 10K, and I didn't realize until I put a bib on that I too was somewhat of a fast runner. And that motivated both of us to continue running. And uh, we both started marathoning separately. And um, Lisa, how many marathons have you run, Lisa? Probably over 40. And I was somebody who said I'd never run a marathon. I mean, 40 is, it's incredible. I've run closer. I think I've run over 20 and both of us, uh, when running marathons quickly realized that we wanted to try and qualify for the Boston marathon. And Lisa has run, um, 20, how many Boston's have you run now, Lisa? 17. 17. Wow. And I've run 10 Boston's and, We um, continue to love the Boston Marathon so much in addition to other marathons, but what we love most about Boston is being able to spend time with each other in addition to um, running the through the city of Boston. The traditions of the race are unparalleled, and 
we hope to continue running the Boston Marathon every year that it's available to us um, as long as we can. So we both separately obtained our coaching certifications 11 years ago without knowing each other. And we met up through a mutual friend and quickly realized that we had a tremendous amount in common. And that led us to support each other in our coaching endeavors. And eventually, 11, over 11 years ago, we formed Run Farther and Faster. And we started out doing group programs for runners, individualized group training programs in the Montgomery County area outside of DC. And we morphed into private virtual coaching over nine years ago. And since then, we've coached over 1,000 runners. We coach runners all over the world. And we coach runners of all levels and distances through our virtual coaching platform. And through the help of experts like you, Amy, we've managed to com compile a team of experts to support our runners all over the world and help them achieve goals um, from running a first 5K to qualifying for the Boston Marathon to achieving PRs that they thought were unimaginable. So we love what we do, and um, we're really passionate about helping runners find um, their best race, their best run to their best ability, and um, do a little bit more each day than they think they possibly can. Lisa, is there anything you want to add to that? I think Julie, as always, Julie and I, um, people who know us know that we usually um, say the same things without each other. <laughs> so, so we read each other's minds at this point. We answer to each other's names. Um, so no, Julie um, really um, put it very succinctly and um, we've had a very fortunate over the last 11 years to have, you know, we had our coaching certifications to begin with 11 years ago, but really where our knowledge comes from is working with runners and with the experts that support us like you and like the other experts that we work with that help support our runners. So we feel very fortunate over the last 11 years to have had so much experience with different types of runners, different levels of experience, different goals, um, and really learning. That's how we've learned um, to be good coaches is through that experience. Well, and I love that because you do really work with all levels and I love the respect that you have for every individual. I mean, you often say, you know, if you run, you're a runner. And that's something that I hear in my office often. People will come to me for sports nutrition and say, well, I'm not that fast or, you know, and they'll, you know, kind of second guess themselves. I know I um, did a couple of your running groups and I, I learned so much. I mean, it helped me with my pacing and my cadence and um, I improved tremendously so um you, you know you you provide such a fabulous product and you really empower everybody who is in your group so another thing that I just think is wonderful is I know that you keep talking about the team approach which you absolutely have I have always just really appreciated the fact that you know you put nutrition um hydration sleep um, stretching, everything is such a priority with all of your clients. Um, how integral is nutrition, just because I'm biased to it, um, for all of your clients? It is, it is really critical. And that's actually something that we have learned over the years is that it's not just about running and, and taking a running schedule and going out and doing the runs. It is about all of the extra stuff and so much of what you just mentioned. So it is about the stretching. It is about strength training. It is um, about adding some cross training. It is sleep. It is mental. So much of it is mental. So we really support the whole runner. And nutrition to us has been really critical in helping our runners. 
particularly those who are training for longer distance marathon, longer distance races, so half marathons and marathons, it becomes really part of their training and, and something that we help support, um, recognizing the limits of our, of our education and our expertise and deferring to um, experts, registered dietitians like yourself, um, but it really becomes so important and um, not only to the racing and the performance, but to the recovery. And um, so many runners that come to us say like, well, I need to work on my race nutrition. Like, what do I eat during the run? Or, you know, my, my stomach gets upset when I try to take food in during the run. And we can certainly focus on that. But what we've found over the years is looking outside of just that run and what you're eating before your run, after your run, and really your attitude towards food is so, so important, um, not only to performance, but to injury prevention. So many runners come to us that are have either confusion or already, um, you know, without classifying it, but just some disordered, um, you know, perceptions of their of their nutrition. And, and working with, with you over the years, you know, something that we've noticed a lot is that many runners underestimate their, their needs, their, their nutritional and caloric needs, um, maybe unintentionally. They think they're fueling well and they think they're fueling um, with enough. And they're not, and many of us are underfueling, and so that has been critical to us to help make sure that our runners are, are fueling properly. But to answer your question, nutrition goes hand in hand with uh, with successful achievements, with with running fast, but also with running healthy. Absolutely, and I think it's multifaceted. I mean, I think the three of us are, are all around the same age. We don't have to publicize that. <laughs> Um, you know, but I think about back in the day, you know, when I was growing up and I was playing sports, nutrition wasn't even really spoken about that much without having the knowledge that I have from my profession. I would be one of those runners who felt like I really need to do my own searching to see, you know, how I need to support my, my progress and my practice. So I think that is one side. I think the other side is, is for the average individual who would go ahead and get on the internet and search, my goodness, there's so much information out there. And how in the world do we determine what is the right information? What is the wrong information? Um, it's just so tricky and, um, you know, cumbersome nowadays. Yeah, that is, that's something we run into a lot, especially now with all of the information and um, fad, I won't call them diets, but nutrition trends, um, that sometimes uh, there is misinformation and runners think that that might be the right approach for them. Or, But like you said, there's so much information out there now. It's almost information overload. And, um, and some, you know, some runners may try to adapt a certain approach that worked for somebody else that may not work for them. Um, or again, have preconceived notions in their head of how they should eat or a weight they should be. And uh, the information is just so overwhelming that it really, we really rely on experts like yourself to sit down with somebody individually and look at their specific situation and what are they training for, what's going on in their lives, what is their health like, and really helping them figure out what works for them versus them doing an internet search or asking their friends or looking to the latest thing. Lisa brought up a really good point, though, too, is that a lot of people come to us um, with respect to nutrition, and they believe that in order to be able to run faster, they have to lose weight. And runners come in all shapes and sizes, and just because you don't look like what you perceive a typical runner to look like, and a typical runner on the cover traditionally of runner's world is one who is um, – tall and very lean and looks like uh, he or she has, you know, 2% body fat. 
you can be a really great runner and not look like that. And I think it's important for people to honor what their natural body shape is and work with, with what you're genetically supposed to look like and be healthy from that perspective rather than looking at the person on the cover of Runner's World and perceive that to be sort of emblematic of what you should look like to be a faster runner. Absolutely. And I think that that sometimes is what drives people to try to search for um, the, you know, the instant results or the, the fad like perceptions really is because they have this kind of like distorted view of what they need to look like. I mean, I'm the first to say, and I say it to all my clients, right? Like I am, I am a shorter woman. I'm petite and, you know, I played soccer, so I've got quads for days and, you know, I may not look like a runner, but I, I always say if I'm at a pool and somebody's drowning, I'll be the first one to save them. And I am very proud of that. So it's kind of nice to, to embrace <laughs> that, right? Um. It is, yeah. it's, hard. it's hard for people to do that. And they do come, we, we often get runners or we've spoken with other athletes who have a preconceived notion in their head of what they need to look like. And Julie hit on what is really most important and something that's really hard for I think us to communicate and for for people to kind of accept is that um, and it, it sounds like almost a cop out but really so much of what we look like and our bodies are shaped like are is genetic and that's your within that context of what your body looks like to begin what, what you're pre genetically predisposed to look like so fighting against that um, is often a losing battle that we see in runners and in um, injury and in, um, you know, really thwarting their training. So when they're trying to get faster and they're not seeing improvement, a lot of it is because they're also trying to lose weight or get to a certain body shape. And it's, it's really a detriment to their training. So we see um, so many um, kind of negative effects of that where they're fighting against their genetics because they're not fueling. So they're getting injured. They're getting sick more often. They're slowing down. They're actually, a lot of them will gain weight because they're not fueling properly. Um, or gain fat or gain, you know, not, they're, they're going in the opposite direction because they're just kind of lost of how, or have this preconceived notion of what they need to do to get to what they think they need to look like. And it really ends up slowing them down or sidelining them if, you know, if, if they get injured. Right. And you said something that's very important first. I mean, we'll go back to the injury, um, uh, but also I think it's really, really important to talk about the fact that if you are too strict with your food, um, or you're not eating enough as an athlete, you know, you're exactly right. You could be increasing your fat mass or you're working against yourself. You just have an inability to really, um, work on the muscular endurance and adaptation that you need as an endurance runner. And I think so many individuals like don't really understand that they feel like, Hey, I read that it's calories in versus calories out. So as long as I'm burning more than I'm eating, I'm good to go. Um, but doing that for a long standing amount of time really does lead to injury. Do you see that, uh, with any of your runners uh, ever? Uh, we, you know, we really try with our runners to set them up for success by right off the bat talking about the importance of nutrition. And we immediately will say we have a registered dietitian we work with, and this is who we recommend for specific advice. And I feel like that helps to set up our runners to be in a place where they recognize that nutrition is not only an integral part of a training program, but also that there are experts out there that will look at you as an individual and help you with your nutrition. But that being said, I mean, over the years, we've seen a lot of runners we know have, let's say, like one really awesome training cycle where they've hit maybe this PR that they've been striving for for months or years. 
And in that training cycle, they've lost weight and they look really, you know, quote unquote fit. And then right after that happens, they suddenly um, with experience a lot of injuries and they kind of not get back to where they were when they hit that peak. So um, looking at some, looking at it from like a whole perspective, what we do see is a lot of runners who might reach that short term goal of achieving a certain race time and in doing so losing weight and, and feeling like they're at a point where they can really succeed in their running. And then all of a sudden they get hit by like a Mack truck and they're just not able to get back to where they were because their body just breaks down. So sometimes it's important to, when looking at your nutrition, to not look at it from the perspective of how am I going to fuel for this training cycle for this marathon, but rather looking at it from the perspective of how am I going to fuel my body over the next several years so that I can be a durable runner and be able to withstand all of this training so that I can continue to progress. That's absolutely important. I think you hit the nail on the head because you know, your needs may change through your cycle as well. So, you know, if you are focusing on performance and then you just stop focusing on nutrition once you hit that PR and you're not really focusing on the appropriate recovery, that's where we see the injuries. And what a bummer to hit a PR and feel so wonderful with all of the achievements you've made and then all of a sudden be sidelined with a stress fracture or a knee injury or, you know, something that, you know, could have could have something to do with your nutrition. I mean, I can imagine that that's so disappointing. For sure. And I think also weight is, there's this, there's this phrase that we've heard over the past decade, racing weight. There's even a book. Uh, it's actually a really good book written by Matt Fitzgerald. I just hate the title, Racing Weight, where there's sort of this perception that you need to weigh a certain amount when you get to a start line. But the reality is weight isn't as important as muscle mass. Like, are you building muscle to support your body so that you don't get those stress fractures that you can withstand the pounding? And a lot of times when you build muscle, of course, and you're also fueling those muscles with um, the carbohydrates you need, what happens? Those muscles hold on. You're you're hydrating. It's called (laughs) carbohydrates. So your muscles holding on to water. So when you step on the scale, you may weigh more. That doesn't mean you're out of shape and that you're not at your quote racing weight. It means that you're getting ready to run a really difficult race that's requiring your body to pound, you know, over and over and over. And therefore you need to be healthy and fueled properly. Yes. And, you know, I love how you all really talk about this and you present it on all of your social media. So I'm going to talk about social media a little bit. I get so tickled when I look at run farther and faster social media, because it's always evidence-based and you're always celebrating the runner, um, talking about all the important things. I think oftentimes we have this um, this quick wit society where you know we want to look something up and maybe we'll go to Instagram or Facebook just to see you know what's on there. Um, a lot of the, the things that I see, like if you were to do a, a search on running, for example, on Instagram, it's very much uh, like you had described, you know, that tall, lean, um, you know, uh, person with a very little body fat. And really, there's generally not uh, that much information um, that's evidence-based for with a general search. How dangerous do you think, um, or do you think it's dangerous um, 
looking to social media for like evidence-based things. So, you know, if you see something like intermittent fasting or, you know, paleo, again, I'm not saying all of those things come from a foundation, but could it be dangerous for a runner who wants to, you know, get to that weight race to just look at something like that, adapt to it and just start it right away? Absolutely dangerous. And that, you know, goes to more broadly social media and, you know, something that we see, just generally with training or with, um, you know, comparison, uh, that, that it, it's definitely, we love social media and that it can be very supportive and it can encourage people and inspire people. But what we don't like about social media is that, um, you know, to, to go onto social media and make a blanket assumption that you can do whatever you are seeing that providing the results that you think you're seeing uh, again, in, under the filter of social media. And that is going to be, your result. And I think, again, it goes back to just that kind of glut of information that's out there. There's so much out there and it's really hard to sort through what is evidence-based. And that I think is such a key term that evidence-based. And that's why we always love it when you talk to our runners and you say, you know, this is, here's the evidence for what I'm going to tell you. And here are some examples of things that don't really have any evidence to back them. And I think that's the shortfall of social media is it's not the right um, the right forum or the right arena to really look for evidence-based, um, you know, real, to really be able to assess what is the validity of this, what is the evidence behind this. It's not the right place to do that. And again, that goes kind of more broadly for social media all across different issues and different um, different topics. So I think that is a real danger that we run into and that we face with, um, and, and it's not just even social media, but it's also comparison within the running community. So you may know your training partner did something or somebody who you saw win a race, this is what they did uh, with their nutrition and they talk to you about they're doing intermittent fasting. So is that something that you need to do? So it, it's something that we definitely have to, we feel like we are there as resources for our runners to kind of reset that and take that all that information that they're getting and say like, well, let's back up a second and let's see, this is your situation right now. This is what you're training for. This is what maybe what injuries you faced in the past. This is your age. I mean, that's something we haven't really talked about yet, but something that we see is a lot of runners who maybe when they were younger weighed a certain weight and that just happened to be their weight and their certain body shape. And then especially for women, as they go through menopause, their body shape is changing. And we get a lot of runners who are like, okay, now that I'm going through menopause, I've got to radically change my diet. Like how, how do I get my body back? And so that's another, you know, so as coaches, we see our role as, um, kind of being the ones to say, like, let's back up and let's look at your particular situation, where you are, what information you need, and, like, what is evidence-based and what experts can we bring in to help you figure out what is going to work for you. So it's kind of staying away from the social media and um, and really helping them um, find that evidence-based information. Yeah, I, I would absolutely echo what Lisa said and just add that I think the problem with social media, too, is that it preys on our vulnerabilities so while, you know, certainly social media can be very positive, often unintentionally those putting information out there, that information may pop up at a time when we're feeling vulnerable and we may then digest that information in, in a different way. So for example, let's say you just had a really bad run. You felt like you were really sluggish that day. Perhaps your bad run was because the night before you drank a lot of wine and you just didn't get a lot of sleep. No big deal. But maybe you're, you just finished your bad run, you're scrolling through Instagram, and you see something pop up that talks about the amazing effects of intermittent fasting, and you say to yourself, you know what, 
maybe I should try this because this says it gives me a lot of energy and maybe I should give this a try. And you start planning your window and you realize that you could, you'll try your next run at six in the morning and you'll, you'll go out and you'll run without any food in you because you're giving this intermittent fasting thing a try. And even though it absolutely doesn't work at all with your training regime, you're going to give it a try because at that moment you want to just um, have more energy and you're feeling vulnerable as a result. So I think social media has its place, but anyone who's using social media to get information on how to fuel themselves is doing themselves a disservice. I agree. And I, I always say that social media kind of um, leads to generalization. Um, you know, you, everybody is different. And I mean, this is like the geeky nerd side of me, you know, each individual is a biochemical experience. So <laughs> experiment. So I am sure, I mean, you do personal training and when I see my sports nutrition clients, there is no one person that is like the other. I mean, do you find that that's the same with your training? I can imagine that each person has a different we training regimen. We always say that. We always say we all are, are all an experiment of one. And that's absolutely the case. <laughs> None of our runners are ever the same as others. And that's why with our individual coaching clients, we start from scratch on every single training plan we do. We don't pop in a stock plan. We don't, um, you know, we don't use somebody else's plan and say, okay, well, it'll work for this person. We start from scratch and we really spend a lot of time getting to know our clients and knowing what, you know, what, what motivates them, what, um, what's their injury threshold? Have they had a past a history of injury when they got up to a certain mileage or when they did certain speed work? What, you know, what, what, what is going on with them? And that is absolutely, you know, you said we're an experiment of one and there is just really no um, blanket statement we could make or blanket training approach we can take. And that's definitely something we've learned over the last 11 years is how to really individualize our plans and how we work with our clients so that they are successful. And that may mean something very different for one runner than it does for somebody else. And the, the issue, though, sometimes, and Lisa can attest to this, is we also, with each of our clients being an experiment of one, we very much rely on the information that our clients provide to us. So if our clients are not providing to us, you know, exactly what they're fueling their bodies with, for example, then we don't really have that information to work with when um, creating their training plans. So sometimes it's, it's a case where a client will fail to mention that they're perhaps they've changed up their nutrition or perhaps they're struggling with um, fueling during their runs, for example. And then we find out um, just a couple weeks before a, a goal race that they've been struggling with fueling. So I think if anything, we would say to anyone listening who is um, trying to figure out how to prepare for a race or how to fuel their runs or how to fuel their bodies around their running is if you are being coached, share what you're doing with your coach or um, enlist a registered dietitian to support you because the more information that your coach and dietitian has, the better runner you'll be overall because we as coaches and you, Amy, as a dietitian, we are only as good as the information that we have from our clients. Yes, I will echo that. That's so important. I always say I would love to have the secret power of telepathy, but um, unfortunately um, I don't have that. So it's much the same on the nutrition end. If we don't know exactly what the training regimen and recovery looks like, it's really hard for a dietitian to individualize like what that nutrition and sleep and hydration needs to look like. So it's very important to have that comprehensive idea of what's going on, you know, with the individual. 
Um, and it's a science. It's really interesting and it's very rewarding to see everybody, you know, do well. And, you know, it's even rewarding to be able to tweak things and, you know, change the projection um, of training um, and performance. I'm sure you both feel the same way. Oh, yeah. It's very exciting. Like when you get a new client and they've been doing the same thing over and over, what's the definition of insanity? It's doing the same thing over and over without any any results. It's the same thing with running in that when we get a client that's kind of been doing the same type of training year after year and they haven't seen results and then we're able to do a few tweaks and really see a difference. That is so rewarding and so exciting. But at the same time, for some clients, we can do a tweak and, and nothing will happen. So we have to keep working at it. So I think part of the fun of being a coach is, is sort of being able to solve the puzzle and figure out how to troubleshoot and what's missing or what's being done too much and taking that out and putting something in and kind of figuring out how we can improve that person's running and most importantly help that individual enjoy their running again if they've kind of hit a pitfall where they're just in a rut and not able to do what, what they love to do anymore. So let's talk a little bit about the personality of a runner. And I don't want to pigeonhole myself here, but I would say I love working with all of my clients. Um, my runner clients are really exciting to work with because um, not that my other clients aren't, but they're very motivated. They have an end goal. They really usually know exactly what they want. There are also some other personality traits that some of my runners um, that I work with have um, that maybe they're not negative um, personality traits, but they are, you know, maybe they're a little bit more black and white. Maybe they're a little bit more of a perfectionist. And this does not mean that all runners are that way. But I find that with this, you know, powerful um, personality and motivation, sometimes um, we can get into this situation where the goals are, you know, very uh, sometimes maybe inflexible to hit their goals. They feel like they have to be very, very strict in nature with everything, you know, like I cannot miss a run that is planned. Um, you know, even if I didn't get good sleep last night, oh no, I didn't pack my food, who cares, get the run. Um, and I think sometimes that leads to kind of, uh, black and white tendencies with food as well. So sometimes I have people who come to me who are extremely motivated and they're ready to get an idea of what their nutrition is, but, um, they're, they have a little bit of what I would call like an unhealthy obsession around like the relationship with food and running, um, you know, I would say it's a smaller percentage, um, but how do you, do, do your runners ever come to you and disclose this, or do you feel like there's clues or tips that, um, you provide your runners to kind of acknowledge so that they can, um, really look into their relationship that's, that's with food? That's a great food? question, Amy. And, and, you know, a lot of people think of runners when they think of runners and, and more of a stereotype is very type A and very results oriented, but that, but running does attract a lot of type A people. A lot of people who are very results oriented, very structured. They like the structure of a training plan. They like to see their, their data. They're, you know, they really, they really thrive on that. And, um, and that carries over to other aspects of their lives. And that may be including nutrition where they're kind of very results oriented. They want to see those results. They want everything written down and they're very, they're very structured about it. So your question is to, you know, how do we assess that and do we see that um, is a very good one because a lot of times people won't come out and say like, hey, I'm really, you know, I'm really strict about my food and I'm really strict about my run. You don't, 
they're not necessarily going to, they may say that, but they're not necessarily going to come out, but, but we can absolutely kind of see the same patterns that apply to their running that follow, that fall over into other areas, other aspects of their lives. And that can be, um, at times very detrimental because like you've said, sometimes, you know, it's a, a experiment. Sometimes we're, you know, trying one thing, we've got to have some patience. Sometimes it takes a while for same thing with the running. Sometimes it takes a while to see the results. So, um, so it is definitely, um, we definitely see it and it is um, not uncommon. And I think, again, it tends to be the personality type that, that likes training for run, you know, for, for marathons, for half marathons, for whatever it is they're training. And, and again, a lot of people, the way it, it overlaps with nutrition is that a lot of people come to running, frankly, and to be honest, to lose weight. Like that's, they're going to, they're going to run, they're going to, you know, control their food that they eat. They're going to look to all of those different aspects, which is nothing wrong with that inherently. Um, it becomes a problem when it crosses over the line of, um, it really interferes with the rest of their lives. So they may, you know, go to all, at all expenses, you know, make sure that they, they're very strict with what they eat. They won't eat, you know, cut out a total certain type of food for, with no medical reason behind it. Or, you know, they get really uptight or upset when they miss a run or they will, you know, skip work to be able to go for their run. So when it becomes that kind of level, um, that's when we obviously get concerned. And we oftentimes with runners like that, which doesn't happen that often, but with runners like that, we'll make sure that they have the support of a registered dietitian and an expert who can help them kind of feel like they're, they've got control of the, of, of the situation and are, are taking the right steps, but they're in a healthy way. And that's really important. I, I would agree that um, it's probably a smaller percentage where, you know, we see that, um, but there's definitely been a, a rise especially with middle-aged women um, with a diagnosis of, of orthorexia. Um, and that is um, really when someone has an unhealthy obsession around food and it's more of focusing on quality, not quantity. So, you know, oftentimes um, the individual may, you know, be eating enough, you know, from a calorie perspective um, overall, but the obsession around the type of food that they're eating disrupts the macronutrients that they're supposed to eat and, you know, ultimately we do get to a place where it, you know, negatively affects running performance. And I think the danger is, is that um, there's not a lot of knowledge out there about orthorexia. I think it's, it's becoming more of a common word and um, more people are privy to it. But at any time, you know, I hear an athlete talking about, um, you know, clean eating or, you know, completely removing a, a, a whole group of food um, or anything like that, it, it, it tends to kind of put a red flag out there for me. I, would, I was just going to say, absolutely. I, I definitely have noticed that trend myself. Um, honestly, not just with running, but in social circles. I think it's our age. Um, I, I'm in my late 40s, and I feel like a lot of people are seeing naturally some changes in their bodies, and they're desperately trying to figure out how to, quote, troubleshoot that. And instead of looking at it from more of a holistic perspective and figuring out, well, maybe I just need to um, eat more healthy fueling foods or um, think about maybe I shouldn't skip dinner every night. Um, maybe that intermittent fasting isn't working for me because I'm starving myself half the day. 
Instead, they're cutting out whole food groups or making um, blanket statements like, I don't eat sugar, which while sugar isn't a food group, for me, that's a red flag because that says to me, I am thinking about food so much that I am cutting out things that can sometimes be fun, like having a dessert or having a cookie with my kid or baking or things like that. And I don't know if you'd call that orthorexia, but for me, I, I think that's sort of a disordered eating perspective because it's allowing food to disrupt your daily life and it's allowing food to be in your thoughts so much to the extent that you are changing the way you interact around food and you're changing the way that you look at food so that you can't just enjoy it, a cookie once in a while because you've made the declaration, yeah, for example, yeah, I've cut out sugar. A lot of people and for me, that's a red flag. Running, like, it's, not a bad, it's not a bad addiction. Like you're not, you know, out smoking or drinking to excess or, you know, you're, you're running. That's a good thing for you. You're cutting out what you think is bad foods. That's good for you. So you feel like it's almost like a, a good thing, but it, it still can be as detrimental and as damaging as having a, a, a quote unquote bad addiction. And it is, um, I think Julie is exactly right with where you, you set these, you know, a red flag for us as somebody who has this hard and fast rule, again, with no medical reason for it. Of I, I, I don't, you know, if a runner comes in and says, well, I don't eat, you know, or I, I, I'm on a, you know, uh, a whole foods diet only, or I don't eat X, Y, Z, that definitely raises a red flag because if, if you have to put that type of rule on your life where you just make a blanket rule, it, it almost to us feels like you don't trust yourself to make the right decisions in food. So you've basically cut out everything of that, you know, whatever, like if you don't make trust yourself or, or know that a balanced diet can include some sugars or whatever, and you've cut out carbs or um, especially carbs, you know, we do as crazy as it sounds to us as runners who know how important carbs are. We do get runners who come to us that tell us they're on a low carb diet. And that to us is definitely a red flag to a point where, we don't want to take somebody, and we know that there have been people who have been successful, quote-unquote successful, on a low-carb diet or paleo diet, you know, paleo athletes or that sort of thing. But that, to us, as, as runners who really appreciate how important carbs are as fuel to our bodies, that will make us, you know, ask the person, like, well, why are you doing that? And have you discussed that with a, with a dietitian? And, um, you know, how are you fueling your runs that way? So there, there are definitely um, certain things that will raise red flags for us. And that's when we uh, really have to dig a little deeper and find out like, what, what's the source of this? Why is this person, why, why is this their, their viewpoint? And, and I think the benefit is, is, you know, the individual who is, you know, paying so much attention um, to the food and the fuel, you know, often they are, um, for lack of a better word, hungry for um, information. They just may be getting it from the wrong place. So if we can kind of just nudge that particular person in the right direction to get that evidence-based information, I mean, I find that I, I, I have a very fast turnaround, you know, oh my goodness, you know, I, I did what you said and I feel so much better. I didn't realize how bad I was feeling until I started to feel better. So, um, you know, that is the pro, um, you know, that we can provide the person with the right um, education. I think it's interesting, Julie, you mentioned, um, you know, the menopausal woman, um, you know, we're all the same age, um, you know, starting that wonderful process. And I think it might coincide with um, the increase in orthorexia, you know, with the middle-aged woman. I often say, 
you know, the general public just, they absolutely accept how the body changes. Like when a woman, you know, goes through pregnancy, for example, you know, you're supposed to gain weight and it's, it's all about, you know, eat, gain weight, grow the baby. Um, you know, we have life cycle changes and that is a positive life cycle experience. But then all of a sudden, uh, we get to this, this age and, you know, there's not that much evidence-based information out there. I mean, we're getting better with it and, you know, but women are scared and they're quiet and they don't talk about it. And honestly, I think that middle-aged women just get desperate, you know, especially athletes. Like it's not fun to all of a sudden have your body change and to not have any information out there. So I just, sometimes I wonder if that kind of is one of the other reasons why we see this kind of quote unquote obsession with also, food for, with, the, with the middle-aged woman. Answer. You know, we want a quick, like we want to go buy something or we want to, th- everyone wants sometimes a magic pill, like a very simple, quick answer, whether that's cutting out certain foods or that's following a certain diet. Like we all kind of want, okay, I'm going through this. I'm, I'm scared. Things are changing. And, and a question I would have for you too, you, you know, you mentioned that you see a pretty, pretty quick turnaround but it get it's very hard to get that trust of somebody to say like the way you're doing it may not be working well for you try it this way and see and and how long do you see does that take and how how you know how do you get people to make that change and, and give it a try give something else a try when they have set in their mind that something else is going to work because that that to me is always a challenge when we're telling runners you know what what really may work is eating more carbs or eating you know changing what you do here and they're very scared to make that change and may not see the results right away. That That's a really good question. And, you know, I mean, I, I've been doing this for 22 years. So, I, you know, I can tell you from my experience, you know, a lot of it is about that kind of like motivational interviewing. I mean, you know, explaining to the consumer what your experience is. Um, you know, and if you truly have that experience, you can almost talk to how that particular person may be feeling without them even knowing it. You know what I mean? Because sometimes when somebody's distracted and really kind of having pervasive thoughts about like either their running schedule um, or the type of food, they're, they're not intuitive with their body, right? So they're not really recognizing, oh, wait, my body may not be like working at Uh, you know, the best capacity. So I think that's why it's really important to work with an expert. Because for example, when I'm working with somebody, when I see the type of um, nutrition, like protocol they have, I kind of know how they're feeling. And so, you know, how do you feel four or five hours after you eat? Do you have a headache? You know, what is the afternoon like? How is your sleep? And just being able to kind of pinpoint those things and just kind of open their eyes that, um, you know, they may not be, you know, the most efficient as possible, that tends to kind of build rapport fairly quickly. And my goal is always, you know, with all of my clients, you know, we're a team, I'm not going to tell you what to do, send you on your way and tell you to do it perfectly. And then, you know, come back, it's okay, this is what I think, what are you willing to do? So it's kind of baby steps. Um, And when you do those baby steps, you can see what those small changes are. But that's a great question. Yeah, I was I was just going to say add one more thing to your previous point about menopausal women and and an increase in orthorexia. Um, we recently did with you a running through menopause webinar, and we really felt it was important to do this webinar because, like you mentioned, it's for years this phase of life has been a phase where people are quiet, and the more information people have through through experts like you, Amy, where they can receive that information, take that information, and use it to 
uh, target what is happening and allow them to make fueling decisions that are more appropriate for where they are in this phase of life. So it's not like once you hit menopause, you, you can no longer be an active, you know, healthy runner. It's about what do I need to change? What information do I need right now to empower myself that I can continue running at a high level that's appropriate for where I am right now without my body breaking down. And I think instead of looking at this phase of life as something that's a detriment, instead look at it like you just mentioned as a new phase like pregnancy. Oh, I'm hitting menopause. What do I need to do to appropriately fuel my body so that I can continue doing the things I love and feel positive about myself? And suddenly engaging in something like a very popular, and I keep bringing it up because it feels like everyone around me is doing it, intermittent fasting, that's not the appropriate thing to do <laughs> at, ever, in my opinion, but particularly in menopause. And if you're armed with the information, you won't be making those choices. So get, getting out there and getting accurate information from experts like you to make appropriate decisions in the phase of life you're in is step one to making sure that you can continue doing all the things you love to do and feeling good about yourself. I think the second reason that orthorexia is more prevalent in women at this age is I think that unfortunately it's so cruel. Menopause also coincides with a lot of changes in a woman's life and that includes kids leaving the nest. And I think, and I'm witnessing it, and I'm in it myself, I have two teens, it's, and Lisa has three, it's a really tough time to be a parent. So what's a great way to have some control in your life? Um, diet. So I think a lot of people unintentionally look toward the foods they're eating as sort of a comfort, and they can sort of control that box in their life when other things in their life that weren't challenging at uh, you know, one phase are suddenly becoming more challenging. Not that parenting in younger years isn't challenging, but it's a new and different set of challenges where you feel like you just don't necessarily have a lot of control. Control. At times with, you know, eating and even exercise, it's actually a coping mechanism. Like you said, it's a distraction. Um, and it's, you get quite a dopamine effect. If you set a rule and you are able to control the outcome and hit that outcome, how that's so rewarding. Um, so, I mean, I think that you, I, you hit the nail on the head. I do think that that's, you know, there's something to that for sure. So I'm going to ask, ask each of you, if you can name the top three things we need to do as professionals to continue to successfully mentor and coach in a world that wants instant gratification? No, I think the first is listening and really um, gaining the trust of, of the client that you're coaching or you're advising on nutrition um, is really making sure they, they, you listen to what, what, what is really going on with them. Like what are their, um, what are their, what motivates them? What are they scared about? Like, you know, Julie just raised a really great point that a lot of our actions that we take aren't really, you know, it's not evident on the face of it, like why we're doing it. It's something that's deeper. And I think that's what we've learned over the years is it's so important to listen to our runners and understand like why, you know, what, what, what's going on so that then they trust you to be making decisions that are, that are in um, their best interest. So that's, that's one thing. I think that's probably um, the most important and related to that is treating each 
each client as an experiment of one and trusting them. So trusting their feedback that they give to you. Like, if, you know, like I kind of, Julie and I were talking about this before with um, training paces or training efforts. Um, you know, when we ask a runner, was that an easy run for you? Was that really easy? That looks a little fast. Like it looks a little bit like you ran that a little too hard. And they're like, no, that was really easy. And, and we have some metrics that we can look at. We can look at their pace. We can look at their heart rate. We can ask them for a rate of, for their rate of perceived exertion. Um, but at the end of the day, like they have, we have to trust them to give us that information. So, um, on the, the first one is listening and getting our, you know, making sure our runners trust us. But then on the flip side of that is, is, is trusting them and trusting their feedback and having that kind of that mutual relationship where we're being honest with each other and, and trustworthy. And, um, and then back to the third thing I would say is back to what you always tell us is, you know, evidence-based, evidence-based, evidence-based. Um, we rely on that a lot in our in our coaching, and coaching is a little bit different because something that's evidence based one year may change <laughs> another year, and um, and same with nutrition. I'm sure too, things that you learned when you first were became a, a dietitian may not be the you know may now be proven not to be um, true or not to be the best approach. Um, but really, um, not uh, not defaulting to um, to the social media or the general trend just because they're a trend. And always falling back on evidence base. We get a lot of runners who will ask us, like, well, why is this important? Or what? You know, we, get, we have a lot of very inquisitive runners who will say, like, well, t explain to me more. What do you need about cadence? Or, well, why is this nutrition important for me? Why is it important to feel this way? And to be able to point back to evidence versus just saying, well, because that's what everybody does. Like, so having um, evidence base and, and really staying on top of that knowledge. So being... Um, you know, continuing education and making sure that we're staying on top of the latest uh, research and, and, and what's going on in the running world, not just running specifically, but everything that supports running, nutrition and strength and all of that. I think that um, at the end of the day, when you go back to your client or your runner or your, you know, whoever you're counseling and you say, here is the evidence, then that really, um, that, that helps guide, um, that helps give them confidence in what you're, what you're advising and, um, and again, with the basis of them trusting you and us trusting them, then, um, then, then having that evidence-based uh, knowledge and staying on top of that is really important. I agree. How about you, Julie? So I agree with everything Lisa said, so I'll add three more. Um, so number one, I think it's important as a coach to meet each client where they are right now. So that doesn't mean looking at a client who maybe 10 years ago ran a PR that uh, right now they wouldn't be able to run, but instead honor where they are physically and mentally right now when starting to coach them. So if a runner is um, coming, after, coming to you after a long layoff or after an injury, it's important to honor how they are physically. If a runner is coming to you um, after just going through some type of trauma, it's important to honor where they are mentally and working with them in that place where they are right now. The second um, point I would make is to recognize when someone may not quite be ready to be coached or counseled in your case, Amy. Like there are just sometimes in a, in a coaching relationship, someone may come to you with, a, with really wanting a quick fix. And when you start working with them, you quickly realize that maybe it's, it's not the right relationship for them right now. Maybe they're just not in a place where they, they can be told what to do. And, and we don't tell people what to do in the sense that you need to do this. We work together. But there are times when, when, 
one who wants to be coached needs to be coachable. And if they aren't in a place where they can accept suggestions and accept recommendations, then, then it isn't a good, the timing isn't right. And perhaps down the road, they would be in a better position to do it, but it's important to honor where they are and say, maybe it's, it's not a good time to start a coaching relationship. And number three, and, and this is something Lisa and I talk about all the time is regardless of the goal that a runner is, is going to set, um, it's really important that when achieving that goal, that the runner enjoy the process. We only live once and we only get one chance at doing this, this whole life thing. And it's really important when setting goals that we enjoy it along the way. And if we're not enjoying ourselves, especially in running, it's a hobby. None of us are professional athletes. We're not being paid for this. And if we're not enjoying ourselves, then what is the point? So it's very important for Lisa and me to help our runners enjoy the process so that when the goal is over and when they've achieved that goal, they're still able to run. And Well, as always, I mean, whenever I see your names in my email or, or see a post on social media, it immediately brings me a smile. I just think you both um, have so much knowledge. You do so much for the community. I am so tickled that you joined me today on this podcast. For everybody who's listening, you can find Julie and Lisa on the internet at www.runfartherandfaster.com. And hopefully we'll be able to talk to you again sometime soon. But thank you so much. Thanks, Amy. Thank you so much, Amy, for having us. As always, thank you for giving us grace with our technical difficulties. We're so happy to be able to talk to one another during this pandemic. Like I said, if you're looking for some personal running coaching or if you're looking for group coaching, please check out Julie and Lisa at Run Farther and Faster, www.runfartherandfaster.com. And if you feel like you're suffering from some of the signs or symptoms of disordered eating or orthorexia and need to talk to someone, please always reach out to me. I will help you find someone who's local to you so that you can have a better feeling about yourself and you can look forward to the future. Thanks so much. Have a great day.